All right, here's what we're doing. We have, we're in Acts chapter something, 22, 21. We're uh, starting Acts 21, 26 this morning. We have about a chapter and a half to cover. We're going to finish the book of Acts, uh, including this weekend would be over the next six weeks. Once we finish Acts, we are going to go to the book of James. If you're not familiar with Calvary Chapel style, we just go, we open up the Word of God, and we go verse by verse through whatever portion of the Word the Lord has taken us to. As I'm praying about what we ought to do next, the Lord has brought up James multiple times. I don't know why. James is like getting kicked in the mouth sometimes. So James is very direct. So we'll deal with that directness once we get there. But to get there in the next six weeks means that we have a lot of territory to cover in the book of Acts. And where we are in Luke's writing to Theophilus, this is, these are the chapters that make people think that this is some kind of legal defense on Paul's behalf. So today the sermon is titled Bound because Paul gets bound as we have been in Acts Uh, Chapter 20 and 21, the Holy Spirit is revealed multiple times that when Paul goes to Jerusalem, he is going to be bound and he is going to be handed over to the Gentiles. That suffering is in his future and this is the fulfillment of that occurring. So that's the title this morning. But as you sit in, like, why is Luke giving these long-winded narratives and he's, he's giving a lot of repetition And allowing Paul to, we're going to see today, he's going to give his testimonies to the Jews in Jerusalem. Eventually, he's also going to give his testimony to the Roman governor of that time. He's going to give his testimony to the Jewish king of that time. Eventually, he's going to go to Rome. We believe and understand that he gave his testimony to Nero. Definitely, he was given his testimony to Caesar's household at that time. And our understanding, again, is he lost his head for testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul's giving this repetitious narrative of these last five years or so of Paul's life and his defense of the gospel that Paul was given from Jesus and the gospel that he faithfully preached for, you know, 20 years of his public ministry. So this is the, these are the ideas that people feel that part of what Luke is doing and whoever Theophilus is as he's writing to Theophilus is he's giving a legal defense for whatever testimony that Paul's giving before Roman judges and those kinds of things. Whether that's true or not, we don't know, but we're going to clearly see even this word today that Paul is giving a defense of himself to the Jews. So we have a lot to cover. We're going to get almost all the way through chapter 22 this morning, Uh, but there's a few major sections, so we'll kind of handle each one of those sections at a time, but we need to handle the whole thing at once because it's all uh, it's, a, it's all a scene that fits together. So as we finish out Acts, we'll deal with scene by scene. And some of the scenes are larger than others. All right, so hold on. Here we go. Acts chapter 21, verse 26. So it says, Paul took the men. So remember from last week, uh, there are some Christian Jews. So Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah. They have taken a Nazarite vow. You can sit in Numbers chapter 6 for the... Uh, the details of the Old Testament law and what a Nazarite vow looked like. Some of that has morphed into their cultural practices. So our understanding is that these four men are at the end of their Nazarite vow. 
and they're going through this final purification process where Paul has been encouraged by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem to to head off any kind of opposition and uh, the gossip that he is not a good Jewish boy, um, that they're encouraging him to be the benefactor, so to say, for these four men who are finishing their vows. So there's sacrifices that are associated with it. There's a financial obligation. So this was considered a very pious thing in the Jewish community, whether believers in Christ or not in Christ, to finance this kind of activity. So Paul is publicly demonstrating that he has not cast out the word of God as a believer in Jesus as the Messiah. You got all that as a handle? So this is what's going on in the culture background. So Paul takes these men The next day, so he's been purified with them, he enters the temple to announce the expiration, the completion of the days of purification. And again, this is where, if you read this and then you go read Numbers 6, it doesn't totally line up, so we know that the cultural tradition has shifted a little. So here's the end of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple, stirred up, they confused, agitated the crowd, and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, against the law, against this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled, he's made this holy place common. For they had previously seen Tromephus, Trophimus, the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was, again, disturbed or agitated. And the people ran together. There's this, there's this crowd rush to seize Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. Immediately, the doors were shut. Now, when they were seeking to kill him, right, they, the crowd has grabbed him to kill him. News came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Remember, they're they're seeking to beat him to death. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. Here's the fulfillment of what the Holy Spirit has promised. And he asked him who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying away with him. And remember, I've told you a couple times already that Luke is paralleling Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and the things that Jesus suffered. Uh, He is paralleling the similar circumstances in Paul's life. So just like they said, away with Jesus. We will not have this man rule over us. They are saying, away with Paul, the one who is preaching Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 37, then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian 
whom some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me, allow me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, and we'll pause here before we get into Paul's defense and his testimony. Look, just sit in the circumstance. So I mentioned to you last week that you really have to, we need to understand the politics of the day. But to understand the politics of the day and what is going on in the Roman dominance of Israel at this time, to understand what's going on in the Jewish leadership, whether this is their secular leadership or religious leadership. To understand, we sat in last week where James said 10,000s of Jews in Jerusalem are looking to Jesus as the Messiah in faith. There's a tremendously blended community in Jerusalem. This is, this is just over a decade before Rome is going to finally destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. So you're sitting in this very um, agitated, divided culture. So how much of your imagination does it take to understand this culture when you compare it to our culture today? And this is, this is we're going to, uh, you know, this past week we had, you know, January 6th is the year anniversary when a conservative movement stormed our capital and used violence. And we've sat over the last year and some of these people have been sent to jail, some have repented, some have, you know, remained obstinate in their use of violence to do what they wanted to do for political means. So we don't have to use our imagine too much to understand exactly what is going on in this mob. And here's the mob. Paul, we're going to get his testimony, but Paul is going into these other communities. So when they talk about Asia, this is the western side of modern-day Turkey. Because they see Trophimus and he's an Ephesian, the understanding is that these are Jews from Ephesus. We can see it in Acts chapter 19 in the testimony of what occurred when Paul was in Ephesus. He was there for over a couple of years. He's preaching the gospel. There's contention with the Jews. So many people are coming to Jesus in Ephesus. It's, it's, a, it's put a dent into the idolatry trade in Ephesus to the standpoint that a mob was welled up against the believers at this time. So this is Acts chapter 19. So now you're sitting in Jerusalem, and this is the man. There's, a, there's, there's a gossip about Paul. There's, uh, there's rumor about Paul. There's truth about Paul that the culture is sitting in. But here's a man who is teaching Jews in the rest of the world to forsake what? To forsake God, to forsake the law, to forsake the temple. This man is teaching Jews everywhere to abandon our God, get them, help Christ. So they're, again, they're using, they're using um, uh, not only just their religious understanding, but they're, losing, they're using their political culture of the day is blinding their reality. 
right? So here they see Paul and they see Trophimus out in the community at some point during this last week where the reality is Paul is dedicating himself to the creator of the heavens and the earth according to Jewish practices, right? He has purified himself. He has made himself clean and distinct from not only Gentile culture, but from the Jewish culture as a whole where he has separated himself and made himself ceremonial clean with these other Jews at the time. Like that's the reality. But the Jews in their blindness, they see him with an Ephesian that they recognize and what did, what did they suppose? What was their assumption in their imagination? Paul brought that guy into the temple. And again, you sit in the culture of this time, there was, there was a four foot high wall around the temple. So you have the, the, the temple platform that you can see today. Where the temple was, you had, you had the main court where the sacrifices were being offered, the labor and all that kind of stuff. And the rooms that were around the structure, only men could go in there. And they had to be ceremonial, ceremonial clean to go into that space. Immediately to the east of that was another square that had all these outer rooms that were used, again, for the religious practices. That was called the Court of the Women. Jewish women could go into that area. Jewish men could go into that area. This is a lot of where the preaching and communication was going on. But outside of that structure, there was a four-foot-high fence with signs around it saying, if you are a foreigner, if you are a non-Jew, and you go beyond this point, you are responsible for your own death. And this is one of those things with this, this is serious enough in this time that even as Rome is ruling over the Jews, they had removed the ability of capital punishment from the Jewish leadership, right? That's why they couldn't execute Jesus themselves and they had to take him to Pilate. This is an exception. The Jews were allowed to kill and uphold their religious law to any foreigner that violated this. So this accusation to Paul, and again, this is at the time of Pentecost. Remember that this is when Paul wanted to be there. The population of the Jews has swollen at this time because people have uh, migrated there for the festival. So it's busy. It's extra busy. People, it's a, it's a festival time, so people are going to be extra dedicated to the Lord. This is a political upheaval time where any foreign influence whatsoever they want to get rid of. Remember the commander here, he says, aren't you this Egyptian that took 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? The word for assassins is Sakari. You know what the Sakari are? These are dagger men. These are murderers. Simon the Zealot, one of the disciples, was one of these zealots. They had daggers, and they would walk into the crowded area, and they would take out their daggers in stealth, and they would knife somebody. Knife them in the lungs, knife them in the kidneys, and kill individuals in a crowd, murdering Jews who they believed that were uh, um, in bed with, so to say, the Roman government. They would do this to Romans. They would do this to soldiers. Uh, if you know anything about Masada, Masada was that last holdout of this group of assassins. Um, you know, after Jerusalem was destroyed, Masada, I believe, happened in 73 AD. This is still, this is a major cultural holdout where everybody committed suicide when the Romans finally got up. There's all kinds of history here. So, the political, religious climate is tremendously agitated. And there's this assumption on the Jews' part that Paul is in violation 
he is in violation to a lot of their understanding, but they're accusing him of doing things that he hasn't done. But in what he is accusing them of, it just takes one voice in a crowd like, in a volatile crowd like this, that's at peace, they're at worshiping, but it just takes one match to ignite them all. So the entire mob of the Jews at this point, they're just hearing little whispers but again, there's confusion, there's agitation. And one of the things that we want to pause in, and even in our culture, to bring it into our culture, the mob, the crowd, the multitude is never right. The crowd on January 6th, regardless of why people were engaged and why they were there and what they were participating in, the mob was not right. We can sit in the, the riots, the, the riots based upon police brutality. So again, we're going to, as the Jew, as the Romans come in, his name's Lysias. So this is the commander. Later on, there's going to be testimony that when Lysias came in, when all the Romans came in to get Paul, that they came in with police brutality, with violent force to stop what was going on. So again, we, we sit in these mob actions in our own culture. And I'm communicating to you what the word of God has to say in regards to any mob, the mob is never right. And the main, one of the main ideas that I want us to pull out of this section as the mob is seeking to kill Paul for a false assumption what does the commander say? He asks the question and, and he's asking the crowd, you know, they finally, they've, the beating of Paul has stopped. They've, they've chained Paul. He's now secure. And as this commander comes in and asks the crowd, what's going on? What is he, what is he done? What are you doing? This group over here is saying one thing. This group over here is saying another thing. And what does it say? He could not ascertain. He could not learn what the truth was because of the tumult. He couldn't learn what the truth was because of all the noise. How many of you feel like you sit in noise every single day? Every single time I get on, and I, I read a variety of news sources, both conservative and liberal, because I want to understand the perspective of what's going on in our culture, in our time, how I'm supposed to respond. You know, I want to be educated in these things, but I want to be balanced too. Do you have a hard time with all the noise? I, I, I have a hard time with the noise. COVID, vaccines, Politics, school boards, racism. I mean, you throw the subject matter out there, and then you listen to the voices in testimony in regards to what all of those things are and how they impact me and my household and our community together. How do you get rid of the noise? I turn to this. I read the noise. I let my brain engage in there. I dial into it. But Lord, I'm, hold, I'm holding this up as a filter. A lot of that noise agitates me. A lot of that noise confuses me. A lot of that noise I, I get, um, you know, justice has the scales. I pull this information here and I've got it on this side. And then somebody else gives me an expert on both sides, pulls over and it's saying the exact opposite. How am I? supposed to uh, 
understand subject matters that I'm not an expert in when experts are giving me contrary evidence. Where's, where's the truth? Lord, I need your mind. I need your heart. I need your words. I need, I need to hear your voice. I need your wisdom. How does all of that impact my behavior and the decisions that I need to make? How, do, how does, how does a, a Republican opinion and a Democrat opinion, how do, how do those vantage points where they're talking about the same individual or the same subject matter and they're on both sides, like, Lord, how am I supposed to engage in this? How am I supposed to engage this loving you? How am I supposed to engage in this loving my household, loving my congregation, loving my community? What, what does this look like, Lord? Give me freedom from the noise. Because the noise is seeking to control you, period. The noise on the Republican side is to what? The word that they use is to stir up the base. It's the exact same thing on the Democrat side. They use their triggers to stir up their base into what? To action. To do what? To do what they want you to do. And sometimes that's right, and sometimes that's wrong. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. But they use the noise. They use the trigger words. They use those things that they know are going to motivate you. They're going to agitate you. They're going to move you into action in a direction that they want you to go. Lord, through your peace that you have brought into my life. You are the Prince of Peace through that position of tranquility, through your truth and through your wisdom. That's how I want to move. If I am moving in frustration and agitation, it's not going to benefit me and it's not going to benefit you. If I'm moving according to the will of God in all circumstances, that's going to be a benefit to everybody because God's going to be glorified. And I'm using this, uh, you can use Paul as an example of this because when he's, he has been seized in a moment where he says, this is it, right? Here's the, here's the moment of my binding that the Holy Spirit has promised. He is being manhandled by a mob that is seeking to kill him, to take his life from him. They are beating him physically. So Paul's got, what kind of bruises does he have on his face and his body in this moment? He has been, he is now chained. He's got some nice new bracelets on between two Roman guards. He's now the property of Rome. Oh my, no thank you. What does he say? Is he freaking out? Is Paul agitated? He's just been falsely accused. He's just been violently beat. And he says, pardon me, sir. Can I talk to you for a minute? Right? I mean, he's like the epitome of the peace of God in his life in that moment. Would you not be freaking out? You'd be crying, you're snotting, you're bloody. My rights were just violated. Right? I mean, go, go down through the list of what most of us would go through. And here is Paul in the midst of God's will for his life. He knew the chains were coming. He knew the physical suffering was coming. Here is God's will for his life. Here, my Lord, I'm your servant. 
your will be done. And he's in this position of peace. So he takes this opportunity, excuse me, sir. And even this, this Roman commander, he's a commander of a thousand men, roughly between 600 to a thousand. This is a Roman cohort. So like in, in our, he's not a general, but he'd be a colonel and he's got a bunch of captains, centurions underneath him. It says multiple centurions come with this colonel. So he is surrounded by all these Roman guards. The press of the crowd is so violent, even with all of these guards, they are physically carrying Paul to the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, which is where the Antonio Fortress is. As they start to ascend these stairs, Paul, in his pain but in his peace, hey, will you let me talk to him? What would you do as the Roman commander? You've got to be kidding me. You just started all of this mess, and you think I'm going to let you address the crowd? Holy Spirit's working in this guy's life, too. Okay, Paul, go ahead. And now here's Paul's speech. And you can parallel this with Stephen's speech in, in Acts 7. We hear Paul as brethren and fathers. Now remember, he's not, he's not talking to Christians. He's, this, he's talking to his culture. These are his brothers, his sisters, his fathers, his mothers. He is a Jew who was born outside of the land of Israel. But listen to the testimony. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense. And this is where we get the word apologetics from, apologia. Hear my defense, my apology, my, my reasons for why I'm here today before you now. And when they heard that he spoke in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And some of your Bibles may say Aramaic, understanding of the culture of the day. Greek was the first language for the upper class in, in the culture of the time. You have Rome that is speaking Latin. The day-to-day -day language, the language that Jesus would have spoken day-to-day -day is Aramaic. Hebrew was reserved for the religious class of the day. So more than likely, Paul is speaking to a language to his brothers and sisters in Aramaic that everybody is going to know and understand because the crowd would not understand Hebrew in this day. Okay? He said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught, literally educated, according to the strictness, the precision, the preciseness of our father's law. And my translation says, was zealous towards God. Sometimes I hate translators. I don't hate them personally, but I don't know why they don't say the right word. It's in the present active tense. Paul says, I am zealous toward God, just as what? As all of you are today. Again, he, he is standing there as one amongst his own, and he is going to be uh, he is seeking to, in an uncompromised way, proclaim the gospel to his brothers and sisters of Israel, not of Christ. It says, I persecuted, I hunted this way to death. Sit in that testimony. Before Paul was a believer, I hunted Believers in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah to their death. 
Now, as a believer down the road, Paul sits in that historical behavior. And he sits in the forgiveness of God too, but at the same time, he never forgot who he was outside of Christ. Binding and delivering into prison both men, ladies, you were not exempted, and women. As also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters from the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Listen to, listen to Paul's historical self. And again, this is when we sit in zeal with God. We had a great conversation about this this morning, just you know, trying to sit in Paul's personality and his, who he was in his relationship with his God before Jesus. And again, he's, he has this testimony, not only historically, but in present tense in his life as he's conveying his testimony, I am zealous for God. I am enthusiastically committed to God. At this time in this culture, a, a zealous for God hero, hero for the Jews is Phinehas in Numbers chapter 25. In Numbers 25, the Jews are once again going to, uh, they're going to Moabite women and they're involved in all kinds of perversity and they're participating in the idolatry of Baal at this time. God sends a plague. And here is the high priest's son who takes it upon himself, and it says that he was zealous with God's zeal, just as Jesus was zealous with God's zeal, and he took a javelin, and he killed a man and a woman, and that's what stopped the plague, and because he did that, God gave promises to Phinehas and to his descendants. Phinehas is a Jewish hero in regards to what it means to be zealous for God, willing to kill for God. So Paul, in his zeal for God, in his upbringing, again, he was, he was educated by Gamaliel. Gamaliel is a, a hero of rabbis at this time. He is the grandson of Hillel, which was another famous rabbi. Uh, Gamaliel is one of seven who attained to this level title of master. Like, this is the guy that you want to be educated by. He wasn't the, the radical side of the Pharisees. He was, uh, he was more in the middle. He really sought for interpreting God's word and the benefit of people. Um, you know, so again, you, you got to sit in a lot of Paul's background and understanding of who he was prior to Christ. But he's communicating to them, just as you're zealous and passionate for that holy place, and for the thought of a Gentile going into that holy place and defiling it, willing to kill me for it, I had the same zeal for God. I have the same zeal for God that you have. Now, it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus about noon, suddenly a great light shone from heaven, uh, from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It's fun to imagine what was the tone of Jesus' voice as he's capturing Saul's attention. Was it quiet and general, gentle? Was it just as vibrant as the light that is showing around him? Was it loud and powerful? Regardless, Paul is shaken to his core at this moment in his life. I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, 
whom you are persecuting, who you're hunting, Jesus identifying himself with his people because we are one with him and he is one with us. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus and there you will be told all the things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of the light being led by hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Again, you can see in Acts 9 and Acts 26, uh, the same scene is related to us. Each one takes on a little bit different flavor. Remember, Paul is giving personal testimony to his audience, being his Jewish brothers and sisters. So in verse 12, then a certain Ananias He tells him, a devout man, a godly man, according to the law. Just as I am devout according to the law, I haven't abandoned the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. All of it will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. Here is another devout Jew, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance got to put some other testimony together. In Galatians, uh, we are told that when Paul was in Damascus, he leaves and goes into Arabia for three years. He returns to Damascus, and then when he flees Damascus, he comes to Jerusalem, where our understanding is he only sees Peter and James. So it's while he is in Jerusalem at this time, while he's praying in the temple, that he has this vision, this trance, as he's communicating to the Jews, what better place to have God speak to you than in the holy place of the temple? Again, he's relating to them. And bearing the testimony of of the reality of what Jesus did in his life. He saw him, saw Jesus saying to him, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. And Paul argues with him. So I said, Lord, come on. They know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe in you. And I'm not doing that anymore. So, I mean, that's a, that's a good test. They're going to believe me. And when the, the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was, I was standing by and consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. You know, so he's trying to argue with Jesus. Like, what do you mean the Jews aren't going to believe my testimony? I'm just like them. And you've manifested yourself to me, and I know you to be the Messiah in truth. What do you mean that my brothers are not going to receive my testimony? Having that argument with the Lord, then he said to me, depart, direct command, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And now the mob's going to freak out again. We'll get to that in a minute. These are the, the words that I want of just the testimony of Paul. We can all sit in who we were outside of Christ and who we are inside of Christ. Paul, again, in his zeal for God, again, we can sit in his self-righteousness and, and just, just 
all the ways that he was pursuing a relationship with the true God, but he was not saved from his sins. He was not born again and a child of God, um, but he was a good guy, right? A lot of you who have been raised in a religious home or religious household, you've always loved the Lord, you've always gone to church, you know, here's a cultural faith, here's mom and dad's faith, whatever that may be. But again, there's, there's this transition of responsibility, and that only comes from Jesus manifesting himself personally to you. And it may not be a vision like Paul has, but there are ways that the Holy Spirit speaks to you, whether it's through his word or through his spirit or through the culture, a circumstance, a conversation. He makes himself known to you. But look at what Ananias said to Paul in this testimony. God's chosen you. And I want you, to, I want you to take these words to yourself personally. Whatever God's will is for your life, he has created you on purpose. And he has chosen you selected you, elected you. Does that cause you to feel special? It cause you to feel loved? Go look at yourself in the mirror. Who are you? You're nobody in comparison to the masses. I'm nobody in comparison to the masses. Lord, there are so many better people that you could have chosen to, to call to your eternal life. Are you kidding me? You chose me? He has chosen you to what? To know his will. Like, this is, this is not just head knowledge. This is, he has chosen you to experience him. He has chosen you to follow him and for his will, his plans, and his purposes, his truth to be made known to you. That is a promise to each and every one of you through faith in Jesus Christ. He has chosen you to know his will. And what else? To see the just one. That's a quote out of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, that you would see the righteous one, the just one, the Messiah. Look at that promise to Paul. And again, this is, this is a promise that you receive to yourself. God has promised to let you see him. And it may not be with your physical eyes, but again, in your mind, in your heart, your experiences of life, he has promised to make himself manifest to you day in and day out. And if he seems hidden, one, you're either not looking for him, or two, he is choosing to remain hidden from you in that moment, asking you, commanding you to believe in faith that he is always with you. But that is a promise to you that he has chosen you to not only know his will, but to see Jesus Christ in your life. And to what? To hear his voice. And whether that's with Elijah in that moment where the voice of God is that still, small voice in the quiet place, whether that's a moment in your life where God is speaking to you like the mighty rushing waters of Niagara and it's clear as can be that that is the voice of God. He has chosen you to allow you continually to hear his voice in your life. And I guarantee to you, you hear his voice every day. He talks to you in your dreams while you sleep. He talks to you when you wake up in the morning. He talks to you as you're having conversations, as you're doing your work, as you're participating in all kinds of behaviors, good, bad, and indifferent. He is constantly there speaking to you. 
Like take every single one of these promises that was given to Paul, take them and receive them as promises to you because he has chosen you. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When he chooses a man and a woman, he gives all of himself. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the almighty God dwells in you. Now, Paul had a specific appointing plan for his life that's different from yours. And that's different from mine. So that is going to be uh, how that plays out in our lives has a great degree of variety, yes? But here, the same words from Ananias to Paul is the same words from the Lord out of his word from me to you. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for to do what you know God's directing you to do? What are you waiting for to know his will? What are you waiting for to see the just one? What are you waiting for to hear his voice? That's a promise for you. What are you waiting for? Every day, take up your cross. Die to yourself. Place your will aside. Place the noise aside. Lord, Father, your will be done. You give to me what I need today. You keep me from temptation, protect me from the evil one. You be glorified through my actions and my behavior. I'll trust you to provide what's needed in any moment. It's the prayer that we're supposed to pray. What are you waiting for? Confess your sins to your God. He is faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Paul murdered Christians, forgiven, chosen, cleansed. What did, what did his moment of baptism look like as he's confessing his sins, as he's being washed, not in his actions, but through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? What's he, what's he doing in the midst of being water baptized? He's calling on the name of the Lord. You're my God. You're my creator. You're my savior. You're my priest. You're my sacrifice. It's your body and your blood that was given for me to die for my sins. Here's the list of my sins, Lord. Here's where I miss. Here's where I'm off. He is faithful and just to cleanse you, to keep you, to purify you. Paul wasn't purifying himself. Jesus purified him. Call on the name of Jesus trusting in his promises. Now, this final section in verse 22 says, they listen to him and tell this word, right? The, cl- the crowd is listening to Paul give his de- defense in absolute silence until one word is mentioned. What's the trigger word? Gentiles. Those people are not gods, period. Kill them. And that, again, that's the attitude of this culture. They, they hear this, God, Jesus, the Messiah, sent me to the Gentiles. Do you know what that means? That means for that culture, they did not know the word of God. They knew what their religion was teaching them. They knew what their culture was teaching them. But it doesn't take very long to sit in the prophets to know and realize and understand that God created everybody and that God loves everybody and that God chose Abraham to be a witness to everybody. And that when the righteous and just one was coming, he wasn't coming just for the Jews, to the Jews first, yes. 
but he came for everybody. Everybody has the same opportunity to hear the call and to say, here I am, creator. Cleanse me, save me, use me, let me see you, because I can't wait to see you face to face. But for this mob, for this crowd, when they heard this word, they raised up their voices and away with such a fellow from the earth. Not just get this guy out of my sight, kill him. <laughs> Insanity. And this is, again, you sit, you sit in what mobs have done in our culture in recent time. And if you just stand and you read the testimony of what goes on, do you not think of, you people are nuts. They would, they're doing things in a mob, in a crowd, that they would never do by themselves. Stay away from the mob. Get away from the noise. Keep relationship with Jesus. Because this, to me, this is just insanity. He, it is not proper for him to live. Then they cried out. They tore off their clothes. They're throwing dust in the air. I mean, you can, you can just see the scene, what they think is zeal for God, but they're actually standing in opposition to God. The commander ordered them to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging, that specific Roman beating that Jesus endured before he was nailed to the cross so that he might know why they shouted against him. So this guy, the commander, he couldn't understand the words that Paul was saying, but he understands the response of the crowd, and now he wants to know, I knew I shouldn't have let this guy talk. Let's go find out what he said. They bind him again with these leather thongs because they are going to stretch him out and interrogate him with the cat of nine tails. Paul says to the centurion who stood by, and again, Paul's not freaking out. Would you not be freaking out? Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Paul knows the law, pulls out that card now. The centurion hears that. He, went, he goes to the commander saying, take care what you do for this man is a Roman. The commander said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. The commander answered, with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. And all, the, all these nuances of, uh, of what it meant to be a Roman citizen, its privileges, how you came to be a Roman citizen. Paul, because he was born as such, in Tarsus, again, very probably, you know, upper class household. He was better than this commander socially. He was higher up the rung because the commander paid for it. More than likely, he was a slave. His name's Claudius Lysias. Claudius is his first name because that was the Roman emperor at the time that he received his freedom. Lysias is the name that he goes by. We're going to interact with him as we travel through Acts. So he bought his citizenship and says, Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him and all the laws and stuff that is going on there. Worship team, come on up. Just final thoughts in this, in this last section, and that deals with citizenship. How much has it cost you to become a child, a citizen of heaven? What sum did you pay? Nothing. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are told that we are born again. 
that we were children of wrath, that we have now become child of, children of God, that we have been born from above, that we have been born again. And this is, there's, a, there's the imagery of adoption, but there's also the imagery of recreation. The citizenship that we have in God's kingdom, in contrast to what it meant to be a citizen of Rome, what are your privileges? What are our benefits? What does it mean to be a child of God? We run to him as a father at any moment in boldness. He's our protector. He's our provider. He's our educator. He's our disciplinarian. Oh, what privileges we have to be a citizen of heaven. Now, Heavenly Father, we, we just sit in the testimony from Luke to Theophilus about Paul, Lord. We see, Lord, just that testimony of what you promise and prophesy through the Holy Spirit. How your word always will be performed in truth and according to your will. Look at Paul, Lord, and just this understanding that even, even in the promise of great physical pain, that he was still at peace in you. Lord, we all know what it's like to be agitated by our culture, whether that's in the realm of politics or religion. And as I've been meditating this week, and I'm, Lord, I'm asking for you to help us all to be free from the noise of the world, the noise of the devil, the noise of our flesh. And Lord, that each one of us would trust you to speak to us, to hear your voice, to see your just one, to know your will. Lord, that we wouldn't wait to press into our relationship with you, that we wouldn't wait to sit at your feet, that we wouldn't wait to follow you. But we stand up, Lord, and we leave all behind. We take up our cross and our death to self, our death to will. And we submit ourselves to you as living sacrifices. Lord, your will be done. Let us see you. Unlike Paul's life, Lord, we want our life to bring you glory. We want, and we want to perform those things faithfully, Lord. Whatever it is that you've appointed each of us to do individually, whatever it is you've appointed us to do as a congregation together, united in the name of Christ, that you're good, gracious, merciful, and tranquil will be done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.